0: I want to start off today's message by showing you a picture. There we go. All right. Just Who is that? Who is that a picture of? Jesus. Whenever I ask you a question in church, so the answer is Jesus. All right. This is probably the most well-known portrait of Jesus in the last hundred years or so. It was painted in 1940 by an American artist by the name of Warner Sullivan. Now, who here has seen this particular picture of Jesus? All right, who here has maybe even had a poster or a kind of an Instagram post with a verse on or something with this particular picture of Jesus? All right, we've got a few hands here. This picture has been reproduced in print over 500 million times. That doesn't even count how it gets reproduced on the internet. And this picture, more than almost any other picture of Jesus, has shaped how many of you see and picture Jesus. When I say the word Jesus, just randomly, all right? Blonde hair, pale skin, he creams every single day, and he's got perfectly white clothes, all right? Now I want to show you a second picture. And immediately we see quite a difference because we've always known this, but Jewish men don't look like the previous guy. You just need to go to the Middle East now or watch the news and you will know that Middle Eastern men have brown skin and dark brown, if not black hair. Also, something unique to those times is that they didn't really have long flowing hair and ZZ top beards. All right. They tended to have close cropped hair and a close cropped beard. Some of the earliest pictures of Jesus, I'm talking first and second century, actually portray him without a beard. The scholars dispute that because as an itinerant preacher he wouldn't have been able to shave regularly all right so he probably carried the style the fashion of the time which was a close cropped beard he almost certainly didn't have brilliant white clothes because he doesn't have the washing products that we have it would have involved him bleaching his clothes regularly and again a poorer traveling preacher would never have been able to do that and now i want to show you these two pictures side by side one more thing on the picture on the right there is the guy a guy from BBC he kind of developed this picture by studying Galileans of the time he literally went and studied the bone structure of many of the Galileans of the time and while he's not saying that's Jesus he's saying if you're going to take an average that's probably what he looks like the scriptures say that there was nothing about him that made him stand out he didn't walk around and floats again he didn't have this lily white skin and blonde hair he didn't have this like halo around him and these brilliant white clothes So he would have blended in with the very average Galilean male of the time. So now as you put these two pictures together, I'm going to ask you a strange question and this time no hands. Which of these two pictures are you more comfortable with? Which of these two, two pictures do you like more? The reason why I raised this and the reason why I didn't ask you to raise your hand this time around is to show you how quickly And how unassumingly we move from what is true and we start reshaping Jesus in our own image. We start reshaping him into our own culture. And at some point you're saying, well, it doesn't really matter because Jesus is still Jesus. And when it comes to pictures like this, it doesn't matter. Except we don't only do this with paintings of Jesus. We do it with his teachings. We do it with his essence, with who he is. We do it with what he has handed us. We do it with his word. And we do it just as much as today was a bit of a shock for you. We do it so easily. And so today is all about the point that when we reshape Jesus in our own image, sometimes we get to the point where that Jesus no longer saves. And where that religion no longer saves so we're in the book of Hebrews we're going through a series called if Jesus if Jesus inherent in the title of the series is a premise if Jesus is this if Jesus has said this if Jesus has done this then there's an inherent therefore in our sermon series title then something has to follow there's a therefore that has to have an outworking and so what we're doing is we're going through all the therefore statements in the book of Hebrews we're looking at the if Jesus part the therefore part and then we're going into what does that mean for us and so what we're going to do is we're going to start off today if you have your bibles here turn with me to hebrews chapter 7 hebrews chapter 7 and we're going to be bouncing all around that chapter but i want to start off at the end i want to start off with the therefore verse so we're going to kind of start at the end then we're going to go back to what that therefore is therefore and it's a pretty big therefore today. And then we're going to circle back to this verse. And hopefully by then, there's something in your heart and mind that is going, wow, wow, wow. So our therefore verse for today is Hebrews 7 verses 25. Let's read together. Therefore, he, Jesus, is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. So that is our verse, and we're gonna actually circle back to that verse twice today. Now there's a whole lot going on in this therefore. And therefore, we're gonna be looking at chapter seven and help, let chapter seven help us understand the real meat and the power of verse 25, this therefore statement. I want to remind you that the author of the book of Hebrews is writing to some very Jewish Christians. Christians who were entrenched in the system of Judaism came to faith in Jesus Christ and so what's going on in the book of Hebrews is the author is drawing on very rich Jewish Old Testament imagery so if we are to understand the same imagery we need to dive into these Old Testament pictures so that when we come to these therefore verses we go wow instead of hmm that's interesting all right so What we're going to see in a second in chapter 7 is that chapter 7 is going to take us to a story at the end of Genesis 14, and we're going to be introduced to a strange, very mysterious Old Testament figure by the name of Melchizedek, Melchizedek, all right. So now when you speak in Hebrew, you always have to have social distancing. So when you say Melchizedek, all right, no one is wiping their faces after you've said that, but that is how we are to speak. So, who is Melchizedek and why is he so important? Well, luckily for you and me, we don't have to turn to Genesis 14. Chapter 7 of Hebrews actually gives us a great summary of the story. So, uh, Hebrews 7 This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. Now, I just want to stop there. Melchizedek is the first priest of God we get introduced to in the Old Testament. Now, Maybe that doesn't mean anything to you. You need to realize that this is over 400 years before the priesthood gets introduced into Israeli life. This is 400 years before the Levites, before Moses and Aaron, before we have sacrifices and tabernacles and temples. And we already have this mysterious figure who is called a priest of God Most High. All of these thoughts you need to hold on to as we read on he met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything now again strange story Abraham goes to retrieve his nephew Lot from these kings and he wins this military defeat he's got all the spoils of war Melchizedek arrives blesses him and Abraham tithes a tenth of the spoils of war to this king now if I just say who is probably the Most key Old Testament figure in the Jewish religion, you'd kind of be betting against Moses and Abraham, and most would actually say Abraham. Abraham, the greatest figure in the Old Testament. And yet this great figure in the Old Testament is acknowledging a greater figure, the presence of a greater man, because the lesser ties and acknowledges the greater. Does that make sense? Another thought for you to hold on to. First, back to Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. Hebrew lesson. Hebrew is all about the consonants. The vowels kind of matter, but not as much. And so if we look at the Hebrew name Melchizedek on the screen behind me, I've highlighted the consonants. And so forget, forget about the actual consonants. Think about the sounds. We see in the name Melchizedek, we see Melech, which means king. And then we've got Sedek or Tzedekah, which means righteousness, so his name literally means the righteous king or the king of righteousness then he is also the king of Salem think again about the consonants SLM think about the word Shalom and literally it says here that he is also by being the king of Salem he's the king of peace or this king of righteousness has a kingdom of peace verse 3 without father or mother without genealogy without beginning of days or end of life Like the Son of God, he has this connection to Jesus. Like the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. So literally, that's all we know about King Melchizedek. He rocks up. We don't know where he comes from or where he's going. We don't know how he became a priest. We don't know how he became a king. We don't know where his kingdom was. And here we're told something else about him, that he doesn't have a genealogy. Every other key Old Testament figure, we get told, here was his great-grandfather who begat this guy, who begat this guy, who begat this guy, who begat Noah or whoever it might be. Noah lived X amount of number of years. He had this many children. And so we kind of get him placed in the genealogy of the Old Testament. Melchizedek, this guy arrives on the scene We're not told where he came from. Now, some people, a very small minority, have wondered if this is kind of a pre-incarnate picture of Jesus himself. Most scholars don't really go that way they're just recognizing that within the way that genesis tends to be written when it comes to key figures this guy seems to have no beginning and no end and in some way as we will see is going to point forward to jesus so let's jump to verse 11 if you're wondering what's going on in the rest of verse 7 chapter 7 from verse 4 onwards it's all about tithing and we know you guys love sermons on tithing But today's not a sermon on tithing. So if you want to tithe better, go read verse 4 onwards. But we're going to jump to verse 11, which says this. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, we're jumping forward 400 years, to priests as the average Jew would have thought about them. What we already see is that the priesthood could not attain perfection. All right? Because these priests were fallible. They themselves had sinned. They had to perform a sacrifice for their own sin before they could perform sacrifices for anybody else. They were fallible. Also, what happens in the Old Testament law is the Old Testament law can tell you where you're wrong, what sacrifice you need to do, but it cannot perfect you. It cannot change you. It cannot transform you. And so we see here, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come why did jesus need to come if that system could have saved one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of aaron for when there is a change in the priesthood there must also be a change of the law he of whom that jesus these things were said belongs to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar in order to be a priest in the old testament you had to be genetically a Levite you had to be connected to that particular tribe there has never been a priest other than a priest from the tribe of Levi and yet as we read on for it is clear that our Lord Jesus descended from Judah he comes from a different tribe and in regards to that tribe Moses said nothing about priests Priests were never meant to come from that tribe. So what's going on here? If Jesus is a priest, why doesn't he come from that tribe? Therefore, we've got to think outside of the box of priesthood in our typical understanding. Let's read on. And what we have said is even more clear. If another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of regulation as to his ancestry, his genetic code, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it is declared you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now I know this is quite heavy going and you may feel like I'm rushing through this, which I am very intentionally. I want to draw your attention to one more verse and then we're going to move on and describe what's going on here. Verse 23. Now there have been many of these priests, these Levitical priests, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus is forever, he has a permanent priesthood all of this to say is this system that was developed this religious system that was developed that was actually even given to us by God himself this priesthood cannot save verse 23 even these guys who were morally flawed they too succumbed to the greatest enemy of death so how could they save if these guys came and went and came and went and came and went and so what this passage is saying is, we need a greater priest. We need a priest that is not necessarily genetically connected only to one tribe. We need a priest who is not morally fallible. We need a priest who is not going to taste the kiss of death and be and succumb to death completely. We need a greater priest. And so the author of Hebrews looks at the priesthood and says, Okay, Jesus is kind of like these guys, but he is actually far more. Then these priests, and then they go back to Genesis 14, and they see this kid, this figure, Melchizedek, this high priest who has no beginning, who has no end, who is not genetically confined to one tribe, who is a king and a priest. And they say, whoa, 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 Jesus is actually more like this guy. And so in what ways is Jesus like Melchizedek, but a truer and greater Melchizedek? Well, firstly, Just like Melchizedek, Jesus is a priest king. Now, I know this sounds like Christianese, but in the Old Testament, you could either be a king or a priest, but you couldn't be both. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. And Jesus, like him, is the greater priest, but he's also the greater king. Now, like Melchizedek, Jesus is a king of righteousness, but a greater and perfect righteousness. Like Melchizedek, Jesus has a kingdom of peace, but a greater and everlasting kingdom of peace. Like Melchizedek, but even more so, Jesus has an eternal priesthood. Melchizedek more than likely died sometime thousands of years ago. And yet Jesus truly has no beginning and no end. And therefore, he is eternally available to us even today as a king priest of righteousness, whose kingdom is a kingdom of peace. And finally, like Melchizedek, Jesus deserves our first and our best. Like Melchizedek. Just like Abraham tithed, these spoils of war to this king. So the greater king, the greater king of righteousness deserves the first and the best of our time and our talents and our treasures. Therefore, circling back for the first time, therefore, verse 25. Therefore, he is able to save completely as opposed to the Levitical priesthood. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So here's the dynamic taking place. The author of Hebrews writing to very Jewish Christians who came to faith in Christ and are starting to experience opposition. In chapter 10, we see they're being imprisoned. They're being persecuted for their faith. And so what's starting to happen is they're starting to go, is this worth it? Is Jesus worth the opposition? Is Jesus worth the difficulty? And they're starting to say, oh, whoa, whoa. we used to like this system. We used to like the priests, the sacrifices, the temple. We know that we're not going to get kicked out by anybody. We're not going to get challenged by anybody for doing that. So maybe we need to go back to that system. And now the argument of the book of Hebrews is, listen, that system cannot save. That system pointed towards a greater one to come. And Jesus is the one who came and by virtue of his indestructible life and by virtue of his eternality and what he has accomplished, he is the only one who can save. Now, maybe some of you are saying amen in your hearts right now. I kind of wish sometimes we're like Pentecostals. We're like, woohoo, amen, praise the Lord. Yes, but no, I know that some of you are saying, okay, Stephen, that's great. Thanks for the history lesson. But when I feel challenged in my faith, when I feel like I'm experiencing some opposition in my faith, I'm not running to priests. I'm not going to buy budgies to sacrifice at the temple. I'm not running to temples. And so how does this affect me? See, here's the deal. I believe Just like, you know, when you're driving a car and you let go of the wheel, it kind of always veers left. I believe that when we're not holding on to Jesus, we still have this tendency to veer away from the true Jesus to religious forms that we are more comfortable with. And at some point, we are going to get to a form of religion that no longer saves in the same way that the Levitical priesthood, even though that religion came from God himself, that system cannot save so I'm kind of using now religion in a negative sense so some of you might push back saying but isn't Christianity a religion aren't we given Jesus doesn't Jesus have commands for us doesn't the New Testament give us a way, a bunch of principles to be and to do church and to follow Christ wouldn't we call that the Christian religion and I say yes absolutely Well, doesn't the book of James talk about a pure and undefiled religion in the positive sense of the word? Oh, absolutely. But if you read the book of Galatians, or if you're tracking with the book of Hebrews, or if you go to the Gospels, what you will find is while Jesus every single time will welcome a sinner, doesn't matter what they have done and how severe their sin is, when they come to him, Jesus welcomes them with grace every single time and on the other hand when jesus comes across religiosity when people take external forms of religion that say jump through these hoops in order to be pleasing to god do these things and maybe god will be pleased with you when people are placing undue obstacles on people that obscure them from the grace of god every single time jesus confronted them with anger and challenged them I mean you want to know why Jesus was crucified one of the things he said to the Pharisees the religious leaders of the time was he said listen you guys cross an ocean to make a single proselyte and yet you make him twice the son of hell as you are no wonder these guys wanted to crucify Jesus Yet, Jesus knows. This is why he's so anti-religion and religiosity. He knows that religion cannot save. I heard one guy say, I just forget where I got this from. And he said, just picture two dads with two sons, and they're going to go to a football game or a soccer game. Dad number one, he says to his son, listen, son, go out and do your best. And if you score a goal, I'm going to be so proud of you. Dad number two says to his son, listen, son, I just want you to know I'm so proud of you. Go out and do your best and see if you can score a goal. Now, both of those sons will play their hearts out. And yet son son number one is playing to earn his father's favor. Son number two is playing from his father's favor. And so when religion gets in the way and forces us to earn the love of God, That form of religion no longer saves. Because what Jesus wants us to know desperately is that we are acceptable to Him. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. His perfect life. And when I am in the perfect one, I get to stand before the Father and He looks at my life as if it is His life. Again, maybe some of you are saying, okay, but Stephen, again, uh, this priests thing, I mean, I'm not running away from God and running to priests and sacrifices and temples. But I think we have our own versions in our lives. For some of us, it's traditionalism. Now, we've got a 2,000-year-old faith as far as the Christian part of our faith goes. And we've got some rich traditions. There are some incredible people who have deposited great things in our religion that have helped us see God. We have many great things that we do that are going to enable us to participate in Christ. And yet for some of us, we don't see the goal In, in every time and place, the way that we do things ought to be, how can we reach the culture around us? But what some of us do, we press pause on some of these traditions and we say that is the only way that you can worship. And instead of allowing the traditions to point us towards Jesus, which was their original intent, we look at the traditions themselves. We love the traditions more than Jesus. We feel the peace and the comfort that comes from the traditions, not from the Son of God. Some of you are like, All, all those people who are into traditions. Well, I believe the same is true today. We can do the same thing with modern contemporary forms of church and worship. Now, I tend to, as a person, prefer where we are today globally. I tend to think it's a, it gives us greater opportunity to reach the culture around us. But that, that's just me. But having said that, for some of us, man, if the pastor doesn't look like a supermodel and the worship team hasn't, again, been made to look absolutely perfect and everything is not perfectly in tune and playing music that sounded like it was made yesterday, I can no longer worship Jesus and what we've done is we've made a tradition out of this new thing. We've made a religion out of this new thing. And it keeps us away from Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with these forms. There's nothing wrong with the forms on this side either. But they were there to point to Jesus. But we missed that. You see, what happens when we've got a spirit of religion is that when I succeed... When I meet the standard, when I do well, when I look at my life and I go, oh, wow, I'm doing this. I'm crushing this. This is amazing. Do you know what that does? That feels pride. Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. I wonder what people think when they see me. Uh, and then I get to look down at those who are not accomplishing at the same level that I have. And I get to judge them because they haven't performed as well as me. And of course, God is going to show me grace because look at what I've done. And yet the scriptures say that God opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Jesus, every single time, opposes self-righteousness. Righteousness I give myself because of my accomplishments. That's religion. On the other hand, you can fail to meet those standards and still have a religious heart because what that does to you is it crushes you. Instead of grace and Christ, where I fail and I fall, going back two weeks ago, and I get to go to my high priest with confidence because he sympathizes with me and he gives me grace and mercy in my time of need. Go back and read chapter 4, verses 15 onwards. Instead of that being how I relate to God, suddenly I feel the overwhelming weight of having failed to meet these expectations. And my life is a failure and that crushes me. No wonder God is so displeased with me so I think so pride either makes me sorry religion either makes me feel pride or crushes me now again some of you are sitting here saying okay Stephen again I don't think that's quite where I'm at because when I'm feeling challenged in my faith and when I'm feeling opposition and when I'm struggling to connect with God the place I go to is not traditionalism or some forms of modern day religion I tend to run away from religion completely. I tend to go away from the things of God. I tend to run towards the secular things. I tend to try and get rid of these external practices. I try and move towards freedom where I'm in control of my own destiny and I get to do the things that I want. So the sermon's not for me. And I'll say, you're wrong. Because even the move away from religion is deeply religious and I'll tell you why. Because you're still looking for something to save you from something. You cannot get that out of your heart. You're gonna look at something to save you from something. And so for some of you, you look to money to save you from the feeling of dependence or insignificance. Some of you look to power to save you from the feeling of weakness. Some of you look to accomplishments to save you from the feeling of meaninglessness or purposelessness. Some of you look at the external self. I need to look and feel perfect to save you from the feeling of being undervalued. Some of you look to sex to save you from the feeling of being unaffirmed. Some of you look to politics to save you from the other team. Some of you look to to control to save you from feeling disempowered that is so deeply religious. Now, the problem with whether it be a traditional religion or a modern religion Or a secular religion. The problem with all of these things that we go to to save us is exactly the same problem that faced the Levitical code in Hebrews chapter 7. And I want to give you four of these. The first problem is that these are broken saviors. These are broken saviors. Every single one of the things I've mentioned are morally compromised. Doesn't matter what religious system, system you look at, it is compromised doesn't matter whether you look at wealth or power or sex. It is compromised inherently. Number two, these are legalistic saviors. And what I mean by that is when you're doing well, like I mentioned earlier, wow, they make you feel on top of the world. But when you're underperforming, think about if you make money your saviour and suddenly you lose it all, it crushes you. The whole system crushes you number three all of these are temporary saviors they make you feel like your deepest need is being met for a fleeting moment yet it doesn't take too long to realize what i was truly yearning for isn't being met by this thing but number three they are deceptive saviors meaning i look to them to save me except what is truly happening is they are enslaving me Because what happens is I look to money for my saviour. It is morally compromised. It is only temporary. It makes me feel good for a while. And then I lose it and I'm going, oh, I feel so horrible about myself. I need more money. And so I go back. And I experience the same cycle. And I go back and every single time I go deeper and deeper and deeper into a compromised saviour. So all of this is to say that religion, religion cannot save I even want to say this and I want to say it so clearly in case anyone misquotes me not even Christianity can save you and by Christianity I'm referring to the external forms of Christianity just by going to church and by externally doing what everyone around you is doing that's on its own if all you do is adopt the external form of Christianity That cannot save, only Jesus saves. And Christianity, by definition, is men, we're following hard after Jesus together, which means yes, we're going to obey him, and yes, we are going to do these things, but it's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. Therefore, he is able, able as opposed to those who are unable he's able to save completely as opposed to those who are fallible he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he is the only one who always lives to intercede on our behalf and so I think it's amazing that we are coming around the table today just the way that we as a church regularly remind ourselves of the cross of Christ. Just to help us focus as if this chapter hasn't been enough, I just want to read the rest of the chapter. Such a high priest meets our need, meets our deepest need of brokenness and pain and death and suffering and sin. One who is holy and blameless pure and set apart from sinners who is exalted above the heavens unlike the other high priests or any other religion we go to, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins and for your sins and for my sins once and, sorry, sacrifice the way, once for all, once for all when he offered himself. As I try to help you recognize The saviors that you've been turning to when turning to Jesus has been hard. Be they religious forms, modern, traditional, be they secular forms of saviors. Let me ask you this question. And I've asked this before, such a powerful question. When has any of these saviors laid itself down for you? Yes, in the heat of the moment, it feels like sex is working for me. Yes, when I've got it, it feels like money's working for me. Yes, it feels like when I've got it, the power is on my side. No, you're wrong. Because when you don't have it, it kicks you when you're down. And yet this Savior, when we were sinners, Christ died for us. His enemies, those who are unworthy. There is no saviour you can look to on planet Earth across the pages of history that has ever done that. And yet he still lives and intercedes for us right now. And so as we come to the table, and maybe he has a good time for you to start opening your little communion pack or those of you at home to get your bread and your juice. Just in case you're not going to join the dots please don't do this religiously don't just go through the motions don't just go oh here's what i'm doing for the next two minutes because that's what we do i want to encourage you to let this look at the savior if there's anyone who doesn't have one of these please once you raise your hand Bianca will get one to you. Let us look at our true high priest, the one who sacrificed himself, though he was perfect for us sinners and his enemies. Let this be an act of worship, an act of insight as I recognize here's where my heart is truly at, but an act of dependence as instead of trying to fix myself, I fix my eyes on Jesus. And so I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna have some music playing very softly in the background. And in your own time, take the bread, a picture of Christ's broken body. Then take the cup, a picture of his blood shed for us. And Holy Spirit, as we do that, I pray that as you tell us in this very book that your word is living and active. Able to penetrate and divide. I pray that you would take what is true from what has been said this morning and it would penetrate us. Not to condemn, but to convict and to invite. Holy Spirit, allow us to see Jesus with greater clarity as we take the bread and as we take the cup. Allow our hearts to respond in great gratitude as we look to the great high priests. Let's take communion together. Therefore, you, Jesus, therefore you, Jesus, are able, you're able to save completely. And for some of us, we are just grateful for the salvation we have received. But some of us are feeling the invitation to salvation. At some level, we've realized we've been looking to morally bankrupt saviors, fallible saviors, temporary saviors, earthly saviors. And Holy Spirit, you've been inviting some of us to yourself this morning to look to the one who is able to save completely. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning, just as our heads are bowed, if there's anyone who is saying that today... I have looked to Jesus for the first time to save completely. Won't you raise your hand? We'd love to pray for you. Maybe if you're at home, we'd love you to get in touch with us through our details on our website. We'd love to pray with you and partner with you as you come to faith in Christ. And so, Father, thank you that you are able to save completely. Those who come to God through you, Jesus you always live to intercede for us so Jesus we bless you and we honor you and we're so grateful today and I pray that we go from here with the therefore we go from here to live in light of the salvation we received with such confidence in our Lord Jesus we pray this in your name Amen